we are going to jump in. There's a lot of material to cover um, in each of these classes, and um, and it goes by pretty fast. So without a lot of introduction, we're going to dive in. But we'll ask for God's help, and then we will we will keep going. So let's let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to dig into some truths. And once again, we ask for your help to think clearly and to think well. And and, in all of these things, Lord, we want to be shaped by your word. So even as we think about history and so on, we we want your word to shape us. And we ask that that this would happen. And uh, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to start today on a a slightly... uh, um, not a tangent, but uh, just a little bit off uh, the, the beaten path to talk about this thing called covenant theology for a minute that I've talked about in, in, in recent weeks. And I had someone a couple weeks ago or last week come and say, I'm a little confused because it seems like you're talking about covenant theology as something you don't agree with, but I thought that was what you actually believed. And so uh, we're not going to take a lot of time. We could take a whole class on this. Um, and some of you who are in the biblical theology class at, at uh, NBC that I taught last year, you, you'll remember we went into a lot more depth on this. But um, w- basically, uh, covenant theology is, is one approach of trying to put the Bible together. Okay? The Bible's, if, if anyone hasn't noticed, it's a big book. It's got a whole bunch of things in it. And the, the task of theology in general is the task of trying to put the Bible together. Um, so we have these different statements in Scripture, and we say, okay, how do those fit together? That, that's theology. Um, particularly, covenant theology has to do with trying to understand the relationship between, um, between the covenants and the different ways that God has dealt with people throughout redemptive history, because there are differences. We here are in this setting right now. We don't have a king with a crown uh, with an army and, you know, with priests offering sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. So there's some pretty big differences. How do we, how do we fit that all together? How do we make these different epochs in the Bible uh, fit together? So covenant theology, and this is for the sake of time, is going to be a really broad brush, but, but we're going um, we're, we're to just go with the big strokes here. Sees, covenant theology sees that um, all of redemptive history kind of fits into... Uh, that's not quite to scale. Uh, it fits into two major covenants. Okay? You've got two major covenants. You've got the covenant of works. And then the covenant of grace. The covenant of works <clears throat> is the covenant that God established with Adam in the garden. Said... Uh, don't eat the fruit of the tree. Get, so he told him what not to do. He told him what to do. And, and they had a covenant there. And the covenant was based on works. If Adam would have obeyed God, he would have lived and done well. If Adam, had, if Adam disobeyed God, he would die. So that's where it's called the covenant of works. Adam failed and broke the covenant of works. And humanity lived in a state of, of, of basically just covenant brokenness until the covenant of grace began with who? Where the covenant of grace began? Abraham. So this, what, what, what begins the covenant of grace is God's <clears throat> gracious covenant with Abraham, which we've been, we've been spending time here over the last few, few weeks, last few months, that God comes and chooses him and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, you know, and, and we can see that it, there's a strong element of grace in this covenant that God makes with Abraham. 
Now, now, so, so covenant theology. So far, we're seeing some things that are that are that are true here. The, the the problem that I have with covenant theology is is the way in which they see this covenant, singular, singular covenant of grace as being <clears throat> this one big covenant that stretches uh, from here on in. And so, the different developments within redemptive history. So, you think of uh, is. Israel and David, and here's perhaps most importantly, Jesus, are simply outworkings of this one big covenant of grace. So when Jesus comes with what he what he describes as the new covenant, it, it's new in relationship to what he did with Israel, but it's actually still just an outworking of this great covenant of grace. Now different covenant theologians are going to describe this in different ways, and again we're painting in a really broad brush. But this is um, basically, if we think about if we think about a line here between Old Testament and New Testament, it's not really a big thick line. There's a lot of this is an important word here continuity in covenant theology between the Old and the New Covenants because really it's all just a part of this big covenant of grace. The, the, the really big difference is between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and so this would be. Um, one of the reasons why covenant theologians will do things that perplex Baptists like us, like, for example, baptize their babies. The reason they will do that is because they'll say, no, look, we're part of the covenant of grace. Back here with Abraham in the covenant of grace, the covenant sign was baptism, and he applied it, or sorry, the covenant sign was circumcision, and, and it was for him and his children. So what's changed? We're part of the same covenant of grace. What's changed? It's for you and your children. The only thing that's changed is it's baptism. But unless we are told otherwise, we assume things work the same because we're a part of this big covenant. Um, th- this, this also affects why, why many um, covenant theologians hold to some form of Sabbatarianism. And by that, I just mean they, they practice uh, that, that Sunday should be something like this, the Jewish Sabbath. It just happens on Sunday instead of Saturday. So slight shift, but, but generally this, the, a lot of the same practices. Okay? On the, so so the, the big thing here is continuity. On the, other, on the other extreme would be another way of putting together the Bible called, uh, so let's write covenant theology here. Covenant theology. Okay. On, on another extreme um, would be a, 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 a way of putting together the Bible called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. Not to be confused with sensationalism, although they actually do overlap a fair bit um, in some popular ways of, of rendering it. It, when I say in some extreme forms of dispensationalism, uh, yeah, I'm using that word negatively. So, so yeah. Um, in its worst forms, dispensationalism would be like uh, Jack Van Impey, you know, who's like on the news with like every little thing that's come it, uh, every little thing that comes out in the news gets interpreted in this uh, biblical prophecy thing, and every everything is um, the, the, the phrase would be like newspaper. Uh, 
newspaper prophecy. Uh, there's <clears throat> there's another word I'm not thinking of in there, but where where the Bible gets interpreted through the lens of the newspaper, essentially, and 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 that would be that would be something I would see as as, as negative. Dispensationalism. By the way, Jordan, can you grab my proper marker off my off my whiteboard? Thanks. Um, dispensationalism sees history as rather through the le- instead of through the lens of covenants, through the lens of these dispensations, uh, which are different ways that God has dealt with people. And there's seven dispensations, and I'm not going to take the time to break it all down here, except just to focus on, on one key one, um, is that dispensational, dispensationalism would see one of the dispensations as what God did with Israel. So let's write Israel here. Thanks. And another dispensation would be the church, what God is doing with the church. And they would see these as being two different ways that God deals with us. So where covenant theology sees a lot of continuity, dispensationalism sees a lot of discontinuity. Okay, So they're not connected at all. Israel and the church, God deals with them in very different ways. They're, they were, they're different peoples of God, some dispensationalists would say. They're, they're on totally different plans, totally different programs. Now, there's a whole variety with different ty- types of dispensationalists, but, um, but they, they would tend to see that Israel and the church are on these very different programs. Most dispensationalists believe in a, a pre-tribulational rapture and a, and a pre-millennial um, coming of Jesus, and here's why this is important. Because the di- most dispensationalists, again, there's all kinds of flavors, would say that Jesus came, offered himself to Israel as the Messiah, although some even, will, like uh, John Hagee, would even argue with that. Um, but Jesus came, offered himself to Israel as, as their Messiah. Israel rejected him, so thus ended the dispensation of, of God dealing with Israel, <clears throat> and thus began a dispensation of the church. Um, where God deals with us in a totally different way. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have a king. Um, but, but even um, a lot of dispensationalists will, will say that whole big swaths of the Old Testament, they don't apply to us. They're, that's for Israel, and there's nothing really for us to learn or, other than just of historical interest. Uh, th- this was law. This is all grace, and, and it's totally different. Now, something big is going to happen here called the rapture, where the church gets taken up to heaven, and then guess what God is going to do? He's going to pick up again on his plan with Israel in the, in the seven-year tribulation. So he's going to pick up where he left off of Israel. That's why you're going to have a temple built again. You're going to have sacrifices being offered. Uh, they believe Ezekiel's temple, rather than being symbolic or just an offer, is going to be literally reconstructed. And that throughout the millennium, so, so, so the, the, the thousand-year millennium, uh, it's going to essentially pick up where he left off with Israel. And even though they're going to acknowledge Jesus as their Savior, they're going to be offering sacrifices in the temple, uh, memorial sacrifices, and so on. Now, again, there's different flavors here. Extreme dispensationalists would say the church gets heaven and Israel gets the earth. And you've got two totally different peoples of God with two completely different destinations for the rest of eternity. Most dispensationalists aren't that extreme. But what they emphasize here is significant uh, discontinuity between these different plans of God. 
Okay? Most of us probably grew up without knowing it under some form of dispensationalism. Okay? Dispensationalism did not exist before about the 1850s. It was invented around the 1850s by guys like John Darby. And, and it became really popular uh, here in North America through popular writings like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth and through the Left Behind books, and through prophecy conferences, and, and very, very, very popular. Now, there's some great biblical dispensationalists who are, love Jesus more than I do, and, and I'm not, I don't want to say that everyone who's a dispensationalist is bad. There's some awesome uh, dispensationalists, and some of who have been getting increasingly biblical. But I don't, think, I don't think this is a biblical way of arranging the Bible. Neither do I think this is a biblical way of arranging the Bible. I think these are like bookends. On the one hand, you've got incredible continuity, and on the other hand, you've got incredible discontinuity. And, and myself, along with a lot of other people, have thought that for, 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 ta- for some time, have thought that the truth is somewhere in between. It's not all continuity. It's not all discontinuity. There's elements of both. And so the position that I hold to, which I've held to for some in some form for, for quite some time, but in recent years, probably since 2012, 13, has gotten really clarified, um, is, is, is understanding that instead of all continuity, all discontinuity, instead of two covenants and a bunch of dispensations, we've got a progression of covenants. So there's a covenant with Adam, uh, or with, we could say with creation. Then there's a covenant with Noah. Instead of, instead of writing the word covenant here, I'm just going to write. Then we've got Noah. Then we've got Abraham. Then we've got Israel, which is an outworking of the covenant with Abraham, which takes place within the context of the covenant with Noah. Then we've got Israel. Then as an outworking of that, we've got the covenant with David. And I'm not, I could draw sort of lines here to see how these all fit together. And then we've got the new covenant in Jesus. And the new covenant in Jesus is a fulfillment of these ancient covenants. It's connected to them, but each of these covenants progresses. And so when we get to the new covenant, we have continuity in that I believe quite strongly there's, there's not two peoples of God. There's one people of God. Um, and and uh, just even the fact that the word church is an Old Testament word. Ecclesia um, is used in the Greek Old Testament for the assembly of Israel. Ephesians 2, he's brought us together into one people of God. I think the, the idea of sacrifices being offered after Jesus' death is just abhorrent. So, of course, Ezekiel's temple is symbolic. To me, there's no question whatsoever. Um, but uh, there's, as we trace this through, there's elements of continuity and discontinuity. If you want to know what this vision looks like, kind of fleshed out, it would be the You Are Here series that we did back in 2018, which is on our website, and, and, and you can kind of read or follow along. And here I've been really influenced by um, Peter Gentry, Stephen Wellam, and their book Kingdom Through Covenant, as they've really done a lot of work showing how this fits together. Um, but basically, this sits in the middle. You got covenant theology on the one hand, and which again, they don't have a corner on covenants. We all believe in covenants, but they call it covenant theology. And you got dispensationalism, and sort of in the middle, understanding there's both continuity and discontinuity. Is 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 this idea? Uh, it's been people have been calling it a progressive covenantalism, which is a big word, big phrase, but it's this idea that. The Bible is built on a series of covenants that progress from, from one to the next. 
So that's a little bit of an aside on, on Baptist history and distinctives because there's Baptists who are dispensationalists. There's Baptists who believe in covenant theology. They just tweak it so, so that it's, they don't baptize their babies. And there's Baptists who, are, who are, hold to some form of, of what I just carved out there in the middle. So um, none of, you know, it's not like you have to be one to be a Baptist, but uh, I hope that's helpful. Um, and and I, think, I think that we should be grateful. I would say I'm grateful for the contribution both of covenant theology. They've, done, they've really helped us in, to see some things in Scripture. Dispensationalists have also, at, at points, have really helped us see some things in Scripture. By the way, I do believe there's a future for ethnic Israel. I think Romans 11 and in the last verses there point is, is, is unmistakable. There is a future for ethnic Israel. But the future for ethnic Israel is Jewish people coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and getting grafted back in to the one people of God, which is, you could say, the church, and, and they will be grafted back in and, and, uh, because right now they're, they're not in. They've been broken off. Um, I grew up in a very dispensationalist home and almost had the idea that if you were a Jew, you were, you were good in God's books just because you were Jewish. And, 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 and no, they're, they're out of the covenant right now. Um, and this is why I have... Man, I'm taking more time on this than I should. This is why um, I touched on this a few weeks ago. Um, a lot of Christians think that to be a good Christian, you have to support the state of Israel. Well, first of all, a lot of Jews don't think that way. Like, I took religious studies from a Jewish professor who's extremely critical of the Jewish state. And second, um, the people running the Jewish state are unbelievers who are out of covenant with, with, with God. So why should we expect them to make godly decisions and do the right thing? Now, I'm not saying we should support Hamas and, and terror organizations, which some people will think. I'm just saying the, the, the Jewish state right now is, is unbelieving people who don't have the Holy Spirit, who are out, who have, in, or they're in a broken covenant with God. They're not in a covenant with God. And so rather than throwing our political support behind them, uh, I think we need to work on, on, on reaching Jewish people with the good news of Jesus that they might be brought back into covenant with God, namely the new covenant, and that they might join us Gentiles in the new covenant. whole lot more to say there, guys. Took more time than I was supposed to. If you want to ask more about that, I'd love to talk to you about it, and let's, uh, but let's not do it on this time. Let's get back to talking about, talking about Baptists and stuff. Because um, we could probably talk about this for the whole rest of this week, uh, this class, and still only scratch the surface. So I'm sorry if I'm disappointing some of you by, by moving on, but uh, we're going to do that. Uh, we're talking about Baptist distinctives today. We, last week we talked about the history of the Baptist movement a little bit, and, and then we started into Baptist distinctives, and we're talking about that today. A few comments I want to make right off the bat here. The word Baptist is... Not a prescriptive word, but it is a descriptive word. Here's what I mean by that. It's not like I say, I'm a Baptist, so what am I supposed to believe? Okay, here's this Baptist book of doctrine. I'm supposed to believe this. Okay, I'll do that so that I can be a Baptist. Okay, that's not how it works. There's no governing body that decides whether you get to be called a Baptist or not. Okay, so it's not like there's this like Baptist world authority that's like, yes, you get to be called a Baptist because you're Baptist enough. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Rather, um, Baptists read the Bible and they come to some conclusions about what the Bible says and they hold to some convictions. And the word for people who hold to those convictions 
is Baptist. That, 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 that's all that it is. Um, when we read the Bible, we see believers' baptism. We don't see a state church, etc. And so the, the historical word given to people who believe those certain things is, is Baptist. Um, number two, because of that, uh, because of how this works, as we talk about Baptist distinctives, you will see varying amounts of these distinctives in other traditions. So it's not like Baptists have a corner on, for example, believer's baptism, because Anabaptists, Mennonites believe the same thing. Um, Baptists don't have a corner on these things. As we talk about Baptist distinctives today, you might think, hey, like I grew up in an MB or an E-Free or an EGC church, and we believe all those things. And I would say, great. It's not, a, it's not about the word Baptist. Baptist is just a descriptive word to describe some, some beliefs. But if you've got those beliefs and you think they're biblical, it doesn't matter really whether you use the word Baptist or not. It's not about the word. It's about, it's about the doctrines, okay? So if you like these truths and you don't like the word Baptist, that's great because Baptist is just a historical word to describe this group of, of beliefs. And so, um, again, it's not, it's not about the word. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> because there's no you know, central Baptist authority, there are all kinds of churches that call themselves Baptist that don't hold to these, uh, these uh, uh, distinctives that, that we're going to be talking about. Um, you think of how broad the Baptist movement is, okay? Rick Warren, Saddleback Church, and the church here in town that believes that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible that is God's Word, both are Baptist churches. So you see, it's pretty broad. And there are all kinds of Baptist churches that are uh, not holding to biblical truth whatsoever, right? So again, it's not about the word. It's not like, oh, they've got Baptist on their sign. There are liberal Baptists who are as 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 unchristian as all get out, who don't even believe Jesus rose from the dead. And there are crazy fundamentalist Baptists who would say, if you don't read the King James Version, you're not a Christian. So the it's not, again, the word that matters. What I'm describing here. Um, when I talk, when I use the word Baptist to describe these distinctives, really, I'm talking about how the word was used truthfully back in the 16 and 1700s, when the Baptist movement was born, and 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 I would see myself as a part of that Baptist movement. In the present day, it could mean all kinds of different things. So don't get hung up on the word; get hung up on the the the, the, the truths. Um, f- fourth comment here: in in their best form these Baptist distinctives we're going to look at are simply outworkings of the truth of the Reformation. And that's how Baptists see themselves. Again, their brothers in other, in other traditions wouldn't see, wouldn't see it that way. But Baptists see themselves as simply um, continuing the work of the Reformation and not, not stopping short, but just continuing it forward. And uh, we're going to see that today. So let's see if we can't, in 20 minutes, <laughs> uh, work through these key Baptist distinctives so we can, we can actually get on with this class. I feel like we could spend a whole class on each of these distinctives, and maybe we'll do that in the future. Maybe we'll do a follow-up class called Baptist Distinctives, and each, each class is on one of these. Um, but let's start with, uh, we're going to do a bit of review from last week. We'll start with the priority of Scripture. Okay, Baptists are, um, as we've seen, Baptists are not afraid of creeds and confessions. They've written lots of them, but that's just the point. Baptists 
are have historically been more free to write new creeds and confessions to better clarify things in light of what they see in Scripture. Um, because Baptists really want the Scripture. So remember Reformation principles, sola scriptura. Baptists want Scripture alone to be our authority, and so we allow it to critique our confessions if needs be. And we don't. We don't. Um, we, we, we want to, we want to um, maintain the priority of Scripture. Now, we know that our other Protestant brethren and other traditions also believe in the priority of Scripture. Um, but it, it's, it's undeniable that in other traditions, there is a higher priority placed on tradition and history um, and, and church authority, ecclesiastical authority. So, for example, um, I have a, a Lutheran friend, and, and he would say that, of course, they believe in sola scriptura. I mean, Martin Luther, right? Like, they, they believe in the authority of Scripture strongly. And as Lutherans, they believe that the Book of Concord, which is the Lutheran Confessions, accurately describes the truth of Scripture. So, so they, they wouldn't see themselves as choosing tradition over Scripture. They would say, of course we believe in Scripture, of course we're biblical, and we believe that this group of confessions and catechisms written in the 1500s accurately sums up the truth of Scripture, so we don't need to improve on it. And, and they would probably say that we are too unhinged from Scripture, that we are just like, oh, me and my Bible are all I need, and that, that they would critique us. Um, and truthfully, in some settings, that critique lands. It's, 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 there are some, some uh, Baptists who are way too unhinged from, from history. Um, like last week, we talked about the no creed but the Bible. But our conviction as Baptists should be that the Bible always plays a higher role than anything else. And so Baptists have typically not placed as strong of an emphasis on tradition. Um, again, that there's all kinds of places where they've gone wrong. Well, we've always done it that way. We've always brewed the coffee that way. We've always had our church leadership be structured that way. So... Again, Baptists can blow it all kinds of places. Um, but for, an example of this would be that why, um, why Baptists... Uh, ba- Baptists have typically practiced when it comes to Scripture and worship some form of the regulative principle. Okay, so this is important here. The regulative principle means that Scripture informs our worship. And that if it's in the Bible, we're going to do it. If it's not in the Bible, we're not going to do it. Now, there's some Baptists who have been softer... And they've said, well, if it's not in the Bible, if it's not prohibited in the Bible, we can still do it. But, but many Baptists have been more, we're going to let Scripture and Scripture alone direct our, our worship. Um, so here's an example of that. So think of Lent, which we're in the season of Lent right now. Okay? So our Presbyterian brothers would say, no, they would say Lent is not in the Bible, but it's not contradicted by the Bible. And... It's a good idea that's been practiced throughout history, so why not do it? And us as Baptists would say, if Jesus wanted us to celebrate Lent, he would have told us himself. Okay, a bit of a joke there. Um, but the idea being that we think, well, we're going we're gonna to place less emphasis on tradition and more emphasis just, what does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't describe Lent, so why would we do it? And that's just more of the Baptist mindset, and that's where we differ. Um, and so, again, our Presbyterian brothers would say that we're missing out on some of the riches of history. And we would say, well, no, we just believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So that's, that's where some of those differences. Um, Baptists have historically placed a lot of emphasis on individual people reading the Bible on their own. So it's interesting. Um, 
in some in some uh, other traditions, like some Westminster Confession ask. Presbyterian traditions, they place a much higher priority on the preaching of the word, and they would say that's super important, way more important than whether you read the Bible on your own. Do we, what do we say? Do we say that reading the Bible on your own is way more important than the preaching of the word? Right. We would say they're both, they're both important. And again, there's lots of Presbyterians who would say the same thing. I'm just saying that that impulse to say we need God's people reading the Bible on their own, historically, that's a pretty Baptist, that's a pretty Baptist conviction. Other traditions like, like Lutherans and, and, and Presbyterians place, say, of course the Bible's important, but would emphasize it more in, in like preaching contexts. So anyways, we could talk about that a lot more. Every, every Protestant, every Christian thinks that they're biblical. So I don't want to say here that, that, that Baptists are the only ones that are biblical or think that they're biblical. But historically, we have placed a higher um, priority on just letting the Bible and the Bible alone uh, inform our worship. Uh, second distinctive, which we touched on again last week, the baptism of adult believers by immersion. Now, adult, maybe... maybe uh, Maybe older children, but definitely conscious believers. Okay, so this is just an outworking of the Protestant principle of sola fide, scripture, uh, faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. We become Christians not because we're born to a Christian family, but because we have faith in Jesus. And so then baptism should be the same. Baptism, you shouldn't get baptized because you were born into a Christian family. You should get baptized because you have faith in Jesus. That's just what Baptists have seen. Baptists have seen that pattern in the Bible. Believe and be baptized. One of the key Baptist phrases is credible profession of faith. So that you should be baptized on a credible profession of faith. And... um, now, some have carried this too far. And, and as, as I've done throughout this whole class, I want to point to some, some Baptist overreactions. Some people have taken that credible profession of faith to say that uh, you need to like follow Jesus for a few years and prove yourself before you get baptized. You know, credible profession of faith basically turns into um, that baptism is like uh, you, you're, you're out of probation after proving yourself as a Christian. See? And that, that's, that's quite a deviation. Um, baptism in the Bible is a celebration of entrance into the people of God. It's not, a, it's not that your probation's over. It's that, no, like you're baptized. In the Bible, baptism is what we often do today with the sinner's prayer. It's like, I believe in Jesus. I need to do something to like, uh, and today we'll go, why don't you pray this prayer? I think biblically, it's like, well, what? get baptized. That, that, that's the answer. That's how, that's how you seal the deal, put the leather on the shoe, tell everyone you're a Christian. Um, and, and sadly, a lot of Baptists have missed that. But, but historically, um, what's, what all Baptists have agreed in is we don't baptize babies. Baptism is for people who have faith in Jesus. Um, and, and, and we would say, based on this covenant stuff that we just looked at, what makes the new covenant new is that, Jeremiah 31, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So that's a big difference from the Israelite covenant, even the Abrahamic covenant, um, is that it's not a mixed group. Um, it, and so uh, we'll get into that here in a moment. Another big thing, Baptists have historically emphasized baptism by immersion. So the whole person, the whole body under the water. 
So the word baptizo basically means, baptizo is a Greek word, it basically means immerse or dip. Um, and if we just translated it that way, we'd get rid of a lot of confusion, but, um, but we don't. Um, you know, you see in the New Testament, when they go to baptize people, they go down into the water. They use the Jordan River to baptize people. Evidently, you needed a lot of water. Evidence from church history, early baptism, baptismals were big. They weren't little bowls. Um, and so we believe, in, we believe in immersion. Now, our church... Uh, will our church will accept people from other churches will accept into membership people who have been baptized by other means um, and that's controversial because not every Baptist church will do that so so if you were baptized as a believer by sprinkling in another church our EBC will uh, will accept that and allow you into membership without asking you to get baptized again some Baptist churches are stricter on that um, but that's something that we really we, we, we strongly believe in uh, number three, uh, you, and you'll, you'll see how these different uh, convictions all kind of flow together. Number three is the priesthood of all believers. Um, this idea that every Christian has a direct relationship to God through faith, through Christ. And so there's not this big church structure. It's not you through your pastor, through your bishop, through the historical procession of bishops up to Jesus. But rather it's just you through Jesus to God, you're a priest. Okay, that's that's that is a that is an insight that Baptists have 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 held strongly to. Um, we could talk about that for a little bit, but what that leads to is some of the, our understandings of the nature of the church. Baptists number four have practiced and believed in congregationalism, which is this idea that in a church. The highest authority in a church is the church. It's the people. It's not the pastor or a bishop over the, 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 that, that group of people, um, but rather um, the last court of appeal in a local church is the people themselves. So we practice this here, which is why like, our members vote on things, right? This, this is, this is because they are the highest court of appeal. So it's very different as Baptists came out of these state churches where in different settings, there, there were different ways of doing it, but you had the people, you had church leaders, and often up and up, and often, often government authorities at the top, right? Because in those early decades after the Reformation, and some for much longer than that, it was state authorities over the church and you had this whole church structure and Baptists believe, no, the final court of appeal is the Christians in that church. It's, it's, it's that. It's those individual believers, priesthood of all believers. This also leads to number five, the autonomy of the local church, which, which we've sort of already touched on here, that, that Baptists reject this sort of top-down structure that there's churches and then pastors and then maybe councils and higher structures or a bishop at the top or a team of bishops that work all the way up. Baptists don't believe that. And, and this is one of the things where you see our doctrine of scripture work, working into it is, is some people in other traditions um, would say that, well, maybe these things aren't perfectly described in scripture, but they're not prohibited by scripture. I mean, the Bible doesn't say don't have this. And it's worked out pretty well in history, so why don't we keep using it? Okay, that would be sort of the, the mindset in some of those other settings. And as Baptists, we would say, hey, 
that's what you you think that way. Great. That's just not that's just not what we're seeing. What we're seeing in Scripture is that it's uh, a, a local church directly accountable to the Lord Jesus through 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 the members. Um, they're a, 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 a local church directly accountable to God. Um, Baptists have been huge proponents of religious freedom. Okay, because even this is a this is a sad thing is that even in the early decades after the Reformation, Baptists were often persecuted, just like Anabaptists persecuted by other Protestants, other Protestants who thought that the job of the state was to make everyone believe the same thing. I mean, in, in, in the Church of England, it was against the law to not go to a Church of England church for a time. In England, uh, it was against the law to not go to a Church of England church, right? So there you've got a Protestant church punishing people if you don't come on Sunday. And, and, and if you don't worship in exactly the right way that they said, they enforced uh, uniformity. And a lot of Baptists, like John, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, was in jail because he was preaching and carrying out a service that was not according to the official Church of England rules. And, um, and so uh, Baptists, have, um, Baptists have believed in the autonomy of the local church. This connects with, with the sixth point, which has to do with the nature of what a church is. Baptists have believed that a church is... A, a group of covenanted together saved and baptized believers. So, uh, in other, so in other settings, for example, um, well, let me just quickly touch on this for, for a moment. This is why Baptists, there, there's, there, there is no such thing as the Baptist church. Like, for example, there's no Baptist church in Canada. There are only Baptist churches in Canada. Autonomous churches composed of, of, of believing people. So again, this is in contrast to some other Protestant traditions where you've got either the state church uh, and the parish idea that if you live in a certain area, you're a part of the church, or you've got this idea that the church is composed of families. And so you're a part of the church, you have a kid, they get baptized, they're a part of the church, and you presume that they're going to grow up and, 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 and have faith um, and if they don't, then you'll deal with that. But, but this idea that church flows through family connections, but then also in those settings, often the church is made up of a, of a higher structure, right? So the church, you might have like the, Presby- the Presbyterian church in America, which so many great, so many great brothers and sisters in, in the PCA who stand with us on so many truths, but they would see that the whole denominational structure is, is the church, and as Baptists, we say, no, the church is that local church, uh, which is a part of the, the global church uh, of Christ, but the church is that local church made up of covenanted together believers. And this is why membership matters so much to Baptists, because, because it is that covenant, that, uh, that agreement together, that as a group of people come together to form a church, they have to agree on some things. We have to agree, if we're going to be a church, on who is Jesus what is the gospel? And are you a Christian? And those are things that we can all draw out of Matthew 16 and 18 when Jesus talks about what the church is. Uh, you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. For a church to be a church in the Baptist mindset, you, you have to have a group of people who agree together on who is Jesus, 
what's the gospel, and, and they agree on each other's com, uh, confession of faith. And so what you've got there is, is, a, is doctrine and, and a membership role, right? You've got what we believe and who are the believers. And as they agree together on those things, those Christians make a covenant together to be the body of Christ together. So that's a Baptist understanding of what a church is, a group of Christians, so believers' church. Now, praise God, there's believers' churches and other traditions, like the E-Free, the, the e some of the other free church traditions. Um, Baptists don't have a corner on the believers' church. But, but the, as, as, as Baptists, we believe that it is those believers covenanting together that we are going to be the body of Christ together. That's what makes a church a church. And so... Um, that, and so the word for that covenant and that agreement together is membership, right? So sadly, in many Baptist churches, this gets forgotten, and membership gets turned into this whole political thing of uh, political games and authority and power. And, and, and at its roots, that Baptists have uh, the Baptist understanding of membership has nothing to do with that. It's about that agreement, and that covenant, because it's that agreement together and that covenant that actually makes a church a church. Uh, so here's from the, uh, from the 1860s, a Swedish Baptist confession of faith. Listen to this. We believe that a true Christian church is a union of believing and baptized Christians who have covenanted to strive to keep all that Christ has commanded, to sustain public worship under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to choose among them shepherds, pastors, or overseers, and deacons, to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, to practice Christian church discipline, to promote godliness and brotherly love, and to contribute to the general spread of the gospel. Also, that every such church is an independent body, free in its relation to other Christian churches and acknowledging Christ only as its head. So there's that, there's that we're free from other Christian bodies. So if we want to believe something, the denomination can't come say, no, you can't believe that. We're free as we place the primacy of scripture to come to conclusions and even that might mean separating from, 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 from a group of people that we had walked with. That's very Baptist ideas here. And, uh, and that the state isn't over us and these denominations aren't over us, even though um, it's very interesting that this Swedish Baptist confession of faith was drawn up at a conference where they were working really hard to work together. So this goes to that idea we talked about two weeks ago. Baptists believe in autonomy, but they're not, they're not separatistic. They're not um, independent as a principle. They're, they, for, historically, they want to work together as much as they can with each other and as much as they can with those who aren't Baptists but who share as much of the same stuff as they can. But they want to work together with other Protestants and they say, hey, you believe in the, those five souls of the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, glory of God alone. Let's work together as much as we can. Um, and, and so there's that, there's that, there is that tension in between independence and, and inter, interdependence. Um, and Baptists have, have had to wrestle with that tension. Um, man, it's 10.15. So in a, in a, uh, a whirlwind way, we kind of walk through these, these, um, these uh, distinctives. Um, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened, very quickly, what happened to the Baptist movement after the 1600s and 1700s. 
And then we're going to touch on uh, very briefly sort of the broader evangelical movement that we were part of, and then very briefly look at our own church history. So where did EBC itself come from? Um, But at this point, I just want to sum up and say again, these Baptist distinctives are, we we believe they're just biblical uh, convictions, and, and we don't have a corner on them. And so if there's other churches that believe these things, great. It's not about the name, right? It's about, it's about these, these, these truths, these ideas. There's no one banging down the doors. Maybe let's take a minute or two. Does anyone have a question or two before, before, we, uh, before you wrap up today's class? I know that was a lot in a, in a short order, but yeah, Nathan. That could be a question. Where does Reformed Baptist fit in with the theological Yeah, absolutely. So um, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. Very early on, the, the Baptist movement was... Uh, from its earlier days, moderately Calvinistic, moderately Reformed. In other words, because they came out of the they came out of the Puritan movement, right? So earlier on, the Baptists were Reformed. So the the idea of Reformed Baptist being a Reformational Baptist, you go back, that was kind of it. Now there was a differentiation that happened where some Baptists. Uh, came to embrace more Arminian beliefs, and so they became known as the General Baptists. And then the, the Baptists who maintained more of the of the of the Calvinistic doctrines were known as the Particular Baptists. So there was a, a, a divergence that happened in the 1600s. Um, by the, and then and then um, the Reformed Baptists never. So as time went on through the 16, 17, and 1800s, you had varying. Uh, each of these groups had varying amounts of influence and, and bigger or smaller groups of churches and whatever. Um, but but Reformed Baptists were very much a part of the mainstream of the Baptist movement up to the 1800s. In the latter part of the 1800s into the 1900s, that really, uh, so now we're getting into a little bit of next week, that really started to get diminished as Baptists became increasingly unhinged from their historical uh, roots, for better or for worse, I'm just saying that happened, and so uh, and that that went along with the process of uh, elders disappearing, and you had just a pastor, single powerful pastor with a deacon board, and and you had this sort of for this shedding of reform theology, and so by the by the early 1900s, by the 1900s, many Baptist churches in North America were were shaped much more by revivalism and pragmatism. And dispensationalism. Michael Haken's a historian. He uses those three words. And so um, a lot of Baptists in recent decades, and I'm one of them, have, as we go to the Bible, but then also we go to history, we go, hey, actually being reformed is a lot more in our history. It was interesting. We were in a conference. Many of you know we just, we, we've left that conference recently. In that conference, um, I, I was ordained and I had written uh, ordination documents that described what I believed, and then there was just, I didn't use the word reform, but just my belief in God's sovereignty and salvation. And I had another another pastor in the conference read that and kind of look at me with a stern look. He says, like, we're not reformed in this conference. Um, so when I when I did a class on church history, I wrote a paper on, on that conference's history, and you go back to the 1860s, and guess what? They were at least, if not reformed, heavily influenced by reformed. And actually, if you read the 1860 Swedish Confession of Faith, very reformed. And so I think the point is, the further back you go, the stronger the reformed influence in the Baptist movement you'll see. But there's lots of Armenian Baptists and 
that that's that's also true, and and that they, that is a strand that goes back quite a ways as well. Uh, that's probably all we've got time for. Great question, and hey, that saved me a little bit of time next week because I want to talk about that next week. So um, I hope this is interesting. But again, I hope this just pushes us all to try to understand the Bible better, and uh, that's that's what it's all about. Lord, would you help us to do that? And I pray that. Um, that we would see the great cloud of witnesses, but that uh, most importantly, Jesus, we'd fix our eyes on you. And whether we call ourselves Baptists or not, I pray you'd help us to keep our eyes on you and in your word, and that you'd shape us the way you want us to be shaped by your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thanks everyone. Feel free to send me your questions. We've got two weeks left, and we'll pick up on this next week.